I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Today we're finally going to be embarking on the opening verses of the Olivet Discourse together. Okay, so again, if we got so used to it again, why is it called the Olivet Discourse? It's, it's the, the famous teaching Jesus delivered to his, his disciples as he sat upon the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So, so today we're, we're going to be beginning in verse 4. Uh, for our reading, just to, to give us just that little bit of previous context, we're going to look at verse, we're going to begin in verse 1. So I invite you to stand, Matthew chapter 24, we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 14 together. This is the word of our living God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help as we study His Word. Lord, we thank You for this passage, for this text, for for this message that we have received, which our Lord spoke, and which we now have before us by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, we pray that that same Spirit would now speak to our hearts, would now open our eyes, now give us understanding, and and give us... uh, Increase our love for you today as we look into these things. Increase our our fear of you as as we do so as well. That you would be glorified and magnified. And that your name would be known. In Christ's name, amen. So having spent the past two months surveying the biblical and historical setting of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew... Uh, and having gone over all the various qualifications and clarifications over the, um, the major interpretive differences among many faithful men of God, just one last little time before we take off running here, I simply am just go- and don't, going to ask that, again, instead of, no matter where you come from on this, 
Instead of writing me off and, and tuning out over the next couple months because we've already, you know, you've already decided to disagree with me on this or that and, and it, you're, you're not going to see it the same way. Or, instead of swallowing up everything I say to you, hook, line, and sinker because you've come to respect and trust my ability to handle the Word of God. In either case, and in, in everyone in between, all I ask is that the text that I present to you, the teaching I present to you, that you take that teaching and that you compare it and you test it and its consistency and harmony with, with not only with what the text itself is saying, but with all of, what God, all of the counsel of God and what His Word says in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to say this especially, especially to kids. Kids, you, you can be particularly vulnerable as you're listening to adults, as, as we're trying to teach you and raise you in the truth, that you just, you just take it for granted what you're hearing, right? And you don't process it. I, this challenge goes to you. As you hear what I'm telling you, have, look at your Bibles. What does the Bible say about these things? And some of you kids, you're looking at me and you're saying, I don't know how to read. How can I do that? That's why you need to learn how to read. It's when, learning how to read in school is not just about learning how to read for the sake of reading. But this, I just gave you a godly, a God-given reason to be diligent in your school and to learn how to read. But, but honestly, test these things. Uh, seek to, uh, again, test them according to the Word. Resolve not to settle or to change your conviction upon any reason except by the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God convicting you through His Word. Have an open mind, not to the novel ideas and philosophies of men, but to, to be informed and even transformed by our study of God's living Word as, the people, as we study the God's Word together as the people of God in whom His Spirit dwells in unity and love. So again, today's text... We're going, to just, we're going to narrow in on verse 4 to 8. Um, but we read verse all the way to verse 14 because as you could probably tell, it's, it's all, that, that's all really one train of thought together. Uh, but So today we're going, to, we're going to break it down into the two parts we, we're given it in though. And I could basically outline it in this way. Verses 4 to 8, you know, Jesus is, is explaining the circumstances through which the disciples must keep calm. So we could break the first part down into keep calm. And so today I call today's message, beware alarmism, keep calm. And then the focus in verses 9 to 14, we could, the shift, uh, it shifts towards the encouragement essentially to carry on. So we, the first part is keep calm, and then he's essentially moving us towards carry on in verses 9 to 14, which we'll look at next week as he promises the advancement of the gospel in the face of adversity. So as we begin, remember, Jesus is answering the disciples' question in which they had revealed some of their own confusion and their own hasty assumptions in associating the temple's destruction with the end of human history itself. We've gone over that. And they have already demonstrated a tendency to, to kind of jump the gun in their understanding and in their interpretation of of God's plan of redemption. And so with all this in mind, you realize that the Olivet Discourse is as much pastoral as it is 
prophetic in its trajectory. It's as much trying to give direction and guidance to the, to the disciples through turbulent times as it is about Jesus revealing uh, what is to come in the future and his, his divine knowledge of what is to come. When the world is caving in around you, right, panic and hysteria can often pose the greatest danger to our well-being and to our mission. And so Christ, and by the way, we've seen what, right, what hysteria and, and people and a society just being caught up in something, how that can cause us to do some funny things over the past few years. It, we can be, we can be a danger to ourselves in that way. And so Christ tells them frankly about the troubling events that would unfold in the days leading up to the coming judgment upon Israel to help prevent them from being tossed to and fro and and being led astray by the latest news reports and movements and popular leaders stirring up premature alarm so as to prey upon people's fears and their insecurities. This is true in any time, right? In any time that that you face uh, troubled times. And so this is what Christ, part of Christ's motive, I believe, in what he's, te- he's teaching them there. And we see that in verse 4. The, the very opening verse. See that no one leads you astray. Right? Like that's his, his, his very fitting opening uh, statement. See that no one leads you astray. In other words, we, we could assume from that that it's going to be easy to be led astray. There's going to, it's, it's, it's going to be, they're going to need to be discerning. Otherwise, he wouldn't say this. And so he says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, I'm going to do my best today. I, I realized as I was preparing my sermon this week, that I just put way too much stuff together. And way too much, especially I, I, I put down a lot of historical stuff that I read from Josephus and, and to, give you, to, to try to give you examples of how we, 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 this, this was reported as taking place during that generation. But I don't want to fill up today's message with all of that. You can, a lot of those are facts and evidences that I can make, I can literally, I have my manuscript that I'm going to try to not go into all these details and I could give you an email so that you can go over it. Again, you, there's a simple books like the one I've mentioned that I've used, uh, The All of It Discourse Made Easy uh, by uh, Kenneth Gentry. There, there's resources I can get you if you want to go into these details. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on them as I go through, but I'm also going I'm, I'm to try not to go into everything, uh, every, every historical fact I could find and uncover here. But this was a common problem in the first century. Because this was the time when the Jews were fervently anticipating the, the conquering militant Messiah to swoop in and deliver them from the oppressive rule of Rome. And, right, and we saw that. There was much surmising over whether or not Jesus could be that, that revolutionary that they were looking for. And the crowds, as, as Jesus came in the triumphant entry, and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David, giving him this, that royal welcome into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. And yet how short-lived it was when they, it became evident that he did not share their messianic agenda. By the end of that same week, the crowd shouting, let him be crucified. 
But that first century, the expectation was, all, was largely fueled by Daniel's well-known prophecy in chapter 9, verse 25. Right? In, in Daniel 9, 25, we're not going to go into all the details of it, but it basically tells you to the year when the Messiah would come. Um, from, in 9.25 he says, uh, So that you will know and discern from the issuing of decree to, res- to, uh, to restore and build Jerusalem, which is, came from King Artaxerxes to Ezra, to go and restore. He says, From that time until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And when you do the math, it, all, it basically comes down to the year when Christ was baptized and his ministry begins. And so, with, again, without getting into the, all those details... It was, it, it was around that time, there was a lot of anticipation because that was one of the few prophecies where it, it, it was not just telling you it's coming, it actually gave a, a timeline. The well-known first century uh, historian jo- Josephus, whom I've introduced to you in previous sermons, he commented on Daniel's prophecies saying that he did not only prophesy of future events as did the other prophets, but he also determined the time of their accomplishment. So, so there's a lot of just expectation and, and just uh, talking about this and, and looking for it. And, uh, uh, of course, we, we see this in, in the disciples, right? They're always asking, they're always on to Jesus. Is this going to be the time? Uh, right, after, uh, right before Jesus ascends, they said, is this the time that you're going to establish the kingdom? And having witnessed everything that they did as those who followed and ministered with Jesus for over three years, even they need to be warned here. Right? He's, he's telling his disciples, he's, he's telling them false messiahs, false Christs are going to rise up. Right? And you need, to be, you need to be warned of this, that you don't be led astray by them. The very disciples who walked with the Christ, right? he, he, they, they lived with him, they followed him. Even they would need to be warned not to be caught up in such nationalistic, messianic movements because Jesus is reassuring them that he has come. Jewish uh, theologian, Abba Hillel Silver, he was a key Jewish promoter of the founding of the State of Israel in 1948. He's a well-known scholar. He had researched ancient messianic expectation and he reported the following. He says this, he says that the first century, however especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed, as we shall see, not to an intensification of Roman persecution, but to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. Okay, so that was just, it was on everyone's minds. And so they'd be quick to jump to you know, anything, any kind of movement, anything that was popping up, they would jump on. Now we have examples. I'm, not, I'm going to skip this. There's examples from Josephus. He actually has 16, if you go through Josephus' works, where he names 16 men who, who arose to certain popularity. Um, one of them was a so-called Egyptian prophet. He, 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 does, he says... Now these impostors and deceivers, they persuaded the multitude to follow them into the wilderness and pretend that they would exhibit and manifest wonders and signs. Uh, he said further that he would show them from, thence, from hence how as it, uh, at his command the walls of Jerusalem would fall down and he promised them that he would procure for them an entrance to the city. 
Um, and yet part of Josephus' own reason, so Josephus was saying about talking about how the Jews, they followed this guy and that guy, calling him the Messiah. And yet one of Josephus' own reasons, again, remember he was a Jew, he fought in the, for, for, for the Jews, and he defected to Rome during the war, the, 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 the Roman-Jewish war leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And, um, and part of what led him to defect was his own messianic calculation, his own messianic kind of expectation, in which he ultimately concluded that the Jews had mistakenly assumed that the messianic oracles applied to themselves, whereas Josephus, upon seeing that the, jo- the Jewish revolt uh, was lo- a lost cause, Josephus, in his book, Jewish War Against the Romans, Jewish Wars Against the Romans, he states that this oracle certainly denoted the government of Vespasian. In other words, he was saying, he identified the Roman emperor, who became the Roman emperor, Vespasian, Flavius Vespasian, as him being the Messiah. And so that was part of what led him to follow after him. So a lot of, just again, we see that this was just uh, bubbling at the time. Of course, we read of examples in Acts 5. Um, in Acts 5, the Sanhedrin, they're trying to decide what to do with the apostles who are preaching and healing in Jesus' name. And it says that they wanted to kill them in Acts 5.33. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And it says that he said to the men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished, and all who followed were scattered. And right, and so then he goes on to say, let's let this, this movement alone. You know, if it's of God, it'll continue. Uh, if it, or it, we can't stop it. But if it's not of God, it'll dwindle, just like all the other ones. So we, we see that even in the biblical record, that this was very common for, for these things to happen. John mentions such false Christ in his epistle, where he calls, um, he calls them antichrists. Right In 1 John chapter 2.18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. That word anti can, means, uh, can mean to substitute or to oppose. Right? And, and if you think about it, both are mutually true when, you, when applied to anyone who would either set themselves in the place of Christ, or who would set themselves against Christ. Either way, they are anti-Christ. Uh, the Jewish, uh, sorry, the, Christ, the church historian, Philip Shape, he notes of Israel during the years leading up to the 67-70 Jewish war with Rome. He, says how, he notes how that era rose to the most insolent political and religious fanaticism, and it was continually inflamed by false prophets and messiahs, one of whom, for example, according to Josephus, drew after him 30,000 men. And so thus these records are plentiful of many pretenders who would mislead many, making messianic-like 
claims, and in some cases outright claiming to be the Messiah. And evidently, it was a fitting place for Jesus to begin to instruct and inform his disciples of the turbulent times ahead. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. One of the signs so often mentioned today comes from that next from the next verse here. Speaking of wars and rumors of wars. And you will hear of wars, verse 6, and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Of course, war has been raging almost continuously uh, through the centuries. Um, And so that ought to cause us to pause and ask, well, how how in the world is this even a useful or a helpful sign then? Right? If, if there's always wars, always rumors of wars, why even mention it? But the difficulty in seeing the relevance of that sign is in our attempts to apply it to the circumstances of today. In God's providence, yet another war, right, even as, as we just prayed for, has been re, re, uh, reignited in Israel last week in response to the terrorist attacks of Hamas. The, the, the Islamic resistant movement from the Gaza Strip. And so far, thousands of lives have been lost and still counting. Right? Wars are, ta- are going on. Then, then we have the Ukraine and Russian war. And there's, there's wars that, that don't make it to the mainstream media. And yet this is nothing new when we conduct a brief survey of the, moder- of the history of modern Israel and Palestine. Wars and rumors of wars is nothing new from... From this standpoint. However, we can see the relevance of this passage when applied to the circumstances of Jesus' disciples in their generation. Where in fact, wars and rumors of wars did serve as a distinct sign of the nearing end of the temple. And this is because of something I've previously mentioned known as the Pax Romana. Which means the peace of Rome. And the Pax Romana began with a, a Caesar Augustus' establishment of what was called the Age of Peace, which began in about 17 BC, 17 years before Christ, where he was able to effectively establish a widespread and enduring peace by creating the Roman Imperial Army, which was the earliest of the world's standing armies in which soldiers right, were regularly recruited and cared for and they would be pensioned off by the state. And they became one of the, uh, historian Michael Grant says, they were one of the greatest and most formidable armies that, was, that has ever existed. Right? So the effect of these standing armies was, was a, a state of peace throughout the empire. A Greek Stoic philosopher, Epictetus, He wrote at the time that Caesar has obtained for us profound peace. There are neither wars nor battles. Of course, right, and in saying that, they're not suggesting there wasn't conflict, right? And on amongst the standing armies, the the armies were standing for a reason, right? They had to stifle, uh, you know, little uprisings here and there. But the fact remains that no major wars or battles are spoken of. For almost a hundred years. And of course God's sovereign hand can be seen in this. As this no doubt aided in the rapid growth 
of the of Christ of the gospel being able to be advanced by Christians throughout that time as they were able to f- freely travel as they did in those first few centuries of the of the early church. Remarkably, scholars observe that this period of peace remained comparatively undisturbed until the time of Nero, who ruled as Roman emperor from AD 54 to 68. And Nero, of course, was notorious for his persecution of the Christians, and who formally, he's the one who formally engages the Jewish war in AD 67. Okay, so AD 67, the Jewish-Roman war, the Jewish revolt begins, and it is uh, in three and a half years, Right, eighty sixty seven in the spring is three and a half years before the fall of Jerusalem and, temp- and the temple's destruction, and it is during that three and a half year war when Nero dies in sixty eight A.D., where we will see in more detail next week that many of the signs mentioned in the next passage, it's it's during that time that they begin to erupt onto the scene in an, uh, an earth shaking manner. And in verse 7, again, we just see, he says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, Josephus wrote that almost every nation under the sun does homage to Roman arms. And he's saying that in the inhabitable world, all are Romans. At that time, the world was Rome. Rome was the world. Rome ruled all of the world. The, inha- the inhabitable world, they're saying. Not, not the wild. Uh, he says they are now lords of the of the habitable earth, and in Romans in Rome's engagement with Israel in the Jewish War, Josephus mentions the involvement of soldiers from Caesarea, from Syria, from Arabia, and from other cities and nations. Right? There's all these nations that they were falling. They were all in line with the Roman Empire, and at Nero's death, the Pax Romana was severely breached with civil wars uh, erupting throughout the Roman Empire amongst the various nations that the Roman Empire had previously conquered or allied with. So Josephus writes about the Roman civil wars at that time saying, he says, I have omitted to give an exact account of them because they are all well known by all and they are described in great detail by a great number of Greek and Roman authors. And so it's during... Those civil wars between 68 to 69, where we have several nations within the Roman Empire uh, attempting to leave the empire. Uh, historian Tacitus mentions the Gaelic provinces of Britain, of Germany, of Samarte, of Subi. Literally nations rising against nations during those years. And so as a result, these events were unfolding in those few years leading up to the temple's end. Christians would recall Christ's prophecy of this coming devastation and the nations raging against nation, in which Jesus will later call the Great Tribulation, and they would heed the instruction that he has for them. And so thus, for that generation, the wars and rumors of wars, in an era of such remarkable peace and stability, would truly be a unique and clear indicator that the temple's end was very near. 
And yet they would also be able to, to discern, as, uh, as at the end of verse 6 stated, but the end is not yet. Right? It's near, but it's not yet. It's not the event itself. And so as we already went over, the word end there is not the same Greek word used by the disciples in verse 3 when they ask about the end of the age. That, that we saw there how throughout Matthew, the end of the age refers to the end of history, right? The, where everything is going in God's plan of redemption. But the word for end here is, is simply the, the word telos, which, right, when you point a telescope, it's the end to which something is going, the goal that is pointed at. That is, he's speaking about the imminent end of the question that the disciples asked, of the temple which the disciples uh, put forward. And so Christ continues the preliminary signs by warning now of famines. So we move to verse 7, where he says, and there will be famines. Again, I'm going to maybe skip over a bunch of these examples. We see, it, we see it, uh, this being reported in Acts 11.28, right? Um, Acts 11.28, uh, he mentions a prophet named Agabus who stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And he said, and, and this took place in the days of Claudius, which was the years 41 to 54, uh, there's also a well-known famine that raged in Jerusalem during the Roman siege. And I'm not going to go into these details, but again, it's in Josephus, the, the Jewish wars of, uh, and with Rome. Uh, and it basically out describes the story of, of a woman who um, slaughters her son and roasts him and eats him because they, they, the, the state that they were in, they were, they, it was so bad. Um, which, by the way... And so that's in Josephus, his works, the Jewish wars. But in Deuteronomy 28, it actually identifies a mother being brought to the point of eating her own child as being a sign of the covenant curse being fulfilled, being taking place. In Deuteronomy 28:56, And that's what we had, there's historic reports of that taking place in Jerusalem during the, during the Jewish-Roman war. Again, I'm going, to, I'm going to skip over some of the, the, the testimonies from different various writers talking about the various famines that, that took place during that, those years. Uh, along with famines, where verse 7 also concludes with the sign of earthquakes in various places. Uh, again, I, I'll just leave it to you to pull up some of these sources for yourself, but to mention a few, uh, Tacitus mentions earthquakes in Crete, in Rome, in Apamea, in Phrygia, in Campania, in Laodicea, in Pompeii, Pompeii, during the years just before Jerusalem's destruction. And yet even more relevant to the disciples, to the region of Jerusalem, was a particularly devastating earthquake that shook Jerusalem in A.D. 67, as the Jewish war was breaking out. This is what Josephus wrote. He said, it said, there broke out a prodigious storm in the night in the utmost violence and very strong winds with the largest showers of rain and continual lightnings and terrible thunderings and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the system of the world was put into this disorder and anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities 
that were coming. Again, that's Josephus, the, the Jewish historian. Yet all these signs are manifesting. The disciples are again cautioned in verse 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Beware of alarmism. Beware of false starts. Be calm. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Again, birth pains indicate that undeniable imminence of the awaited event, right? You, you've been looking to it, the, the birth pains hit, and it's just, you know, you're, you're right there, you're on the verge of it happening. Um, well, and, and here he notes that it's only the beginning of the birth pains, reminding the disciples. Right? He's saying, if, so in other words, he's saying it's not the event itself. The, the baby's not come yet. Right? It's not time to freak out, parents, dads. Right? You think of the first time, you, uh, you know, for the dads here and moms, but mostly the dads who freak out when they're told that, you know, I, I, think, I think I'm in labor. Right? The last thing you want to do is just start running in circles, trying to thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's here right now. No, that's the time to keep your cool. Um, I don't know most of, most of you are like us, but we ended up in the hospital, I think, day, like, you know, days before the baby actually came. Um, and of course, by the last one, we almost, we almost don't make it to the hospital because you're a little too peaceful and calm about it. But the birth pains do, they, they are telling you, it's the thing you've been waiting for, waiting for, waiting for, it is, it's, it's, it's almost here. So be ready, right? Don't freak out, but be ready. Right? Have your bag packed. But don't, don't quite go out the door yet. And Jesus is saying, the time is come, it's there, but not, but not yet. Uh, of course, the Old Testament would frequently use that imagery of birth pains for, for God's wrath coming upon men in history. So for example, Isaiah 13, 6, he says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come, and therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. In other words, because they know what's coming. Right? And, they're, and I, I, I don't know this personally, but I hear from the side of the woman that it's terrifying. It's a terrifying thought, not knowing. But you know something is about to happen, but it's not quite there. But there's another aspect as we kind of close this off. That Jesus also, he also uses this imagery himself, but with an added element of hope, right? Of, and of deliverance. In John 16, 21, he uses this, the imagery of a woman giving birth. In, in John 16, 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world, right? Uh, and so for the disciples, it's, it's a reminder that these birth pains were not the end in and of itself, as if that's all they were looking to. 
The birth, uh, but, but these were the birth pains of the kingdom of God coming on earth. These were the bursting of the old wineskins, as Jesus explained in Matthew 9. And the insertion of the new wine into the fresh wineskins of the kingdom. The Jewish church would no longer be tied to a particular nation or state as it had been to that point. There was confusion oftentimes between the Jews and the Christians. uh, The nation and and persecution would, uh, would break out between them because of that. But they would no longer be tied to a particular state, but instead we would be tied to Jesus Christ as her, as her head. And uh, to Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Matthew 9, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So the salvation that Christ secured in his death and resurrection, right, that was already accomplished. But it would be advanced in degree and power in the world and in history as the old Jerusalem and old temple era were officially and visibly wiped out. And the new Jerusalem and new temple, the body of Christ, was left standing And thriving thereafter. And so before its complete fulfillment. uh, Hebrews 8.13 it explained. It said in speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. Speaking of the old. And what is becoming obsolete. And what is growing old. Is ready to vanish away. He's speaking of the old covenant system. the The ceremonial sacrifices. Everything that went with it. It's vanishing away. And so we observe, even from this instructive phrase as as being the beginning of the birth pains, preparing his disciples to understand that in due time that the temple's destruction would firmly establish and seal the new covenant era which was accomplished through the atoning death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying there is, he, he, in one sense, he's, he's telling them, it's the beginning of the birth pain. It's, it's, it's right there, but it's not yet. But what they would also come, we see from Hebrews, what they would also come to understand is that it was the beginning of an entirely new era of the church in Christ. And so whether you agree, as, we, as I wrap this up, whether you agree with me or not on the timing of the fulfillment of these particular events, I think we would all agree And there is no denying, since Christ ascended, there has been no shortage of wars, of famines, of natural disasters. And the time we are in today is no exception to this. I mean, we can identify certain parts in history that are worse or better. And so if I'm saying that all these things have already taken place, that that we've gone through in the Olivet Discourse... How are we to, in- to interpret the chaos and corruption that we see stirring today? How are we to interpret the wars and rumors of wars that we hear today? Of the, the pending famines that we hear today, when we hear of earthquakes today? How are we to, to process that today? Well, I, want, I just want you to think of, in this way. Throughout Scripture, generally speaking, the common thread running throughout the background, anytime you have wars... 
blood, uh, you know, massive bloodshed breaking out. Anytime you have famines and plagues, catastrophic disasters. Generally speaking, these are always indicative of what in Scripture? What is happening in the world when these things are happening in relationship to God? Judgment is the general overarching theme when, when these things are taking place. That the world is not as it should be with its creator, right? The creation is, is troubled, it's disturbed, it's disrupted. We are not at peace with our maker. And so when we face similar events in our day, although we, again... Uh, we're, we're, we aren't going to interpret it as the birth pains of God's wrath that is about to be poured on, upon the Israel and the destruction of the temple because we've seen that that's, taken, that's happened. But is it not in harmony with the principles of Scripture to understand that these kind of troubled times are the result of nations raging war and rebelling against the God of peace and the God of justice and the God of righteousness, and the God who, blessed the, who is the source of all blessing, and that when you see, when you see injustice, and, and, and sin, and rebellion, and all these things stirring up, that it's telling you that we're not right with God, who made the heavens and the earth. And so when these sorts of turbulent times fall upon us, as they maybe have to some degree and maybe will even more so in the future, what do we have a tendency of doing? Again, just trying to apply the principles of the text to us today. What do we have a tendency of doing? How can, this, how can our text today instruct us? We have a tendency of doubling down and crying out to our false idols who cannot save of doubling down in our rebellion and of seeking to do things our way and seeking to run over other people to, to, to have things done our way. Crying out to our princes, to our governments, to our, uh, our health care providers, right? to, our, to our prescriptions to, 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 to solve our problems. Or some will seek to escape what they see happening by means of distractions, given over to the passions of the flesh, drugs, alcohol, sex, all those things, entertainment. But all of it ultimately leads to the same destructive end. And so again, to that, and as we see the chaos ensuing, see to it that no one leads you astray. You're in a very vulnerable state. right? Our world, the crazier things get, the more vulnerable we can become. See to it that no one leads you astray, for many will come saying, I am the Christ. They might not say it that way. We're, we're in a different culture and a different point in history. But again, remember, Christ means anointed one. It means, it's referring to the Savior, to the Deliverer. Many will come and say, I am the man. I am the one who will get you out of this. I am the solution. Put me in charge. Or they'll say, this will save you. This, you know, this system will save you. This is the answer. Many false Christs will arise and they will lead many astray. And so just as that happens, 
And, and the disciples needed to hear it and be warned of it in preparation for the, the coming of the, God's judgment upon Israel. When we see God's judgment coming upon the nations around us, we ought to heed the same warnings. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Right? We must first own, when we see stuff, when we see the chaos ensuing, we see wickedness and evil arising, we must first own our own rebellion against God and see that we have brought this judgment upon ourselves so that we would cry out to Him. I wrote this out just in regard to our prayer, but again, if you think of it this way, based on media reports, Hamas, right, and their disregard for human life, including this, again, and you don't, we, we don't know what kind of, war always involves propaganda, and again, you need to be careful with what you hear, and what you say as being absolutely true. But as a general fact, it, it's, it, it's a common thread throughout history um, in Islam that they, that they would, that it, in, in, in the Quran, that, it, that you know, slaughtering of in, innocent people is justified as a way to getting to uh, people who are not uh, right, followers of Allah um, is justified in, in, in removing anybody that stands in their way and seen as a good thing. So it, we, it's not surprising when you hear it the slaughtering of, of, of infants and of innocent children and of women. But on, and on, on the other hand, right, Israel, in their own way, has demonstrated their disregard for human life. I looked, at, I looked up a report, and in 2021 alone, they slaughtered 16,500, presumably because they're in Israel, presumably Jewish infants, in the year 2021 alone, because they were in the womb and they, didn't, they weren't wanted. Right? That is also an abomination to God. As, as much, and and so, as is the, the wickedness and the, 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 uh, the slaughter of Hamas. Canada also celebrates the right for Canadians to murder... 87,000, so almost 90,000 children in their mother's wombs in the year 2021. Right? So before, before we go pointing our fingers right, and, 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 and all the different things that need to be solved, let us own our own rebellion against God. Give an account for our own lives and our own fail, failures. Again, these, these are you know, somewhat private, public sins. We, let's start in our own homes. And confessing and dealing with the sins and the ways in which we have sinned against God and one another. And cry out to Christ, the Savior, to have mercy upon us and our souls. Like the Jews who upon hearing Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2 verse 37, it says that they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later he said, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Flee to Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the, for the revelation, for the word that we have received today from you. We thank you for how we see of, it speaks of your faithfulness and of your guidance and your care for your people and how you led them through the, the turbulent times and the, that, that, that great time, that transition from the old to the new covenant and just the judgment that came upon Jerusalem. Lord, we also thank you for how it instructs us today as your church, and who also, again, if we're not, have and will face turbulent times, and will continue to do so until Christ comes again and sin and death is utterly defeated. Lord, may it instruct us in how we ought to respond and how we ought to, how we are to, to avoid the pitfalls of alarmism and and of following after this, this movement and this wave and different things, and that we would, we would keep us anchored in, the, in Christ who has come and who has delivered and, and, and made a payment for our sin, to reconcile us and, get, and to have peace with our God, even when the world is not, is not at peace, even when everything is crashing down around us, that we can have peace with God because of what Christ has done on the cross. God, if anyone is here today and they have not found that peace in their heart, they're in turmoil within them, I pray that you would direct their souls to Christ and that they would trust in Him and that they would put their faith in Him and follow after Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.